Hello and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. This is another special edition of our podcast and we're calling it our Positivity Podcast. Of course, there is a lot of horrible stuff going on out there at the moment with regards to COVID-19. The impact it's had on families up and down the country has been immense, both from a health perspective and an economic one. But we're trying to take a helicopter approach to the situation. In Dr. Steve Peters' book, The Chimp Paradox, he says that in order to reduce stress and anxiety, it's often good to use a long zoom approach to life or the helicopter perspective. Even though we're in the middle of some strange times and lockdown seems like it's gone forever, if we view it from a distance, it is a tiny part of your overall existence. So since this lockdown period would have been 0.2% of my life, and as I live longer, that will go down, it's just a bump in the road if you put some distance on it. So what we want to do is focus on how the whole lockdown could potentially change the way we live in a really positive way. We're going to cheat a bit because we're going to ask the same question 10 times. It's going to be, what positives can we take from this unprecedented time? We hope in this one question answered in 10 different ways, it will inform you and get you thinking about how economics might work better in the future for a more loving, sustainable planet. That was a long intro. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did check it. Yeah, no, no. It, it, re- it sounds longer than it reads. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there we are. So we are going to talk about positivity. I have to say normally positive, positivity kind of brings me out in a rash. So we are going to try and work in some economics, the so-called dismal science uh, as we go through. So it's interesting you should say about 0.2% of your life, the lockdown period. I did look up how long World War Two lasted because there's been lots of, um, I don't know, fairly lazy um, analogies with World War Two. Guess guess how long it lasted in days? Uh, uh, 1,500. <laughs> well, probably 2,194 in Europe, which sounds very, which seems quite long, actually. Yeah. Six years, six times. I've done pretty poor there, haven't I? Well... No poorer than you. <laughs> so maybe it's not comparable. But anyway, uh, over to you. You're going to kick us off and ask us the same question 10 times. Is that right? Or am I going to ask you? Why don't I ask you? Well, go on then. Yeah? Yeah. So what positives can we take from this unprecedented time? Well, Tell me what. first of all, have you got a bell? I, do you know what? I have got the bell. Shall I ring it? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> first of all, we've got this thing about governments becoming more radical. And bizarrely, to use a slogan that we've heard many times over the last couple of years from Britain, they can take back control. And what I mean by that is it's quite interesting how, for example, Denmark has announced, you know, that they won't be uh, allowing uh, firms uh, that use tax havens to access bailout money. Uh, You know, and, and there's another couple of countries, I think, have recently announced that as well. And so it's kind of this idea that where previously before maybe businesses have had a little bit of too much power and have kind of lobbied so much that they've obviously can bend the government at their will. The governments are now turning around and saying, well, actually, we don't want this kind of moral hazard situation, you know, like we've previously seen where, uh, you know, you can basically give your shareholders all the profit, all this kind of stuff like that. But when it comes to, you know, times like now, 
we're going to bail you out and we're not going to do it unless you start actually committing, you know, to the big project of our country by paying your taxes and mm. so on. It's interesting because in the UK, there's been some controversy about Richard Branson, uh, Philip Green, both of whose companies are in effect registered in tax havens. Um, and yet, you know, they both want bailouts, you know, which is quite interesting. Yeah. It's interesting they've both got knighthoods. You kind of think, how on earth do you get a knighthood if you sort of dodge taxes? It just seems very, very odd. Yeah, it, it does <laughs> seem a little bit. Services to industry, even though the profits from those industries... I mean, I mean I'm slightly... I mean, in, in terms of, let's say, the Branson bailout, for example, and the Philip Green uh, sort of potential bailout of his shopping empire, Arcadia... I suppose it would protect people's jobs in this country. So it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, it does create a dilemma for governments. But um, certainly you almost think there should be some kind of contractual arrangement. Yes, we will bear you out, but we expect to see, uh, you know, your company back here. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, next year, you know, in terms of the legal registration. Yeah, maybe not. I saw the Archbishop of Canterbury was asking why Richard Branson hasn't asked the Virgin Islands for a, a bailout um you know <laughs> kind of quite amusing but but i mean it yeah it's a it's a it's an interesting one there's a lot of kind of uh again one of the the issues here about why it should be really positive is how governments not only kind of taking back control but just becoming more radical so it's this idea yeah we'll barrel out we'll bail you out but we'll maybe have five percent equity in your business mm. you know we, we're gonna have a yeah. little chunk thank you very much you know so that ultimately in the future if your profits go up we'll we'll benefit mm. on those profits and uh, clearly there's been criticisms again f from kind of banks and so on who are giving their you know bosses huge uh, bonuses and again it's kind of having a little check i find it quite fascinating really because after the financial crisis of 2008 you had these uh what they called the the checks um where they had to, oh, uh, stress yeah the stress test stress test yeah yeah and you kind of think well if it's if it's important for banks then you know should we have a system where maybe you know we have that for just general businesses yeah i mean i suppose i'd say a couple of things about that firstly um these are unprecedented times it, it isn't quite and the government has basically said to many firms we are not letting you operate uh you know so in a sense it's not it's not a situation in which you, you know, businesses could put aside money for. Um, does that make sense? I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. Why sure um, sort of put it in that same category? And the other thing is, I mean, not to be too cruel, uh, and it's kind of the the Schumpeterian idea. Do you want a, you know, perhaps perhaps it's good if some firms fail sometimes. You kind of mentioned that in your last um, episode. You know, some some firms have had their day, as it were. Um, but there are, you know, we talked about this last episode, didn't we? A lot of good firms are potentially going to fail. Yeah. But it's interesting what you were saying about radical ideas. You know, there, there has been talk of um, a universal basic income uh, potentially, you know, coming back on the agenda. Um, and in a sense, the government has guaranteed people's wages for the, for the majority of workers in the UK for a, a temporary period, at least. Um, it, it does... It reminds me of the, you know, the discussion you were having last episode about, you know, disaster capitalism uh, versus um, the movement of uh, what's it called? Yeah, the utopia for realists. 
Now, what's the window called of ideas? Oh, yeah, the Overton window. The Overton window, yeah. yeah the idea that, you know, the, the um, sort of prism in which you view the world and what is acceptable w- could arguably be changing before our eyes. Yeah. Um, arguably. It's interesting, though, you know, neg- uh, universal basic income. Milton Friedman, who, you know, is the sort of uh, heartthrob of um, sort of neoclassical economics, was talking about a similar idea, the negative income tax, as he called it, uh, back in the 70s, which is um, maybe it's not uh, not so wacky an idea. No, no, it's quite interesting. Well, we are, you know, uh, spoiler alert, we are sort of, our next episode will potentially be about Milton Friedman. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really interesting idea. I won't go into it into too much detail here but it's it's not quite the same as a universal basic income but it's um it's it's similar it's similar yeah there are similarities but there's there's also going on about the kind of radical thing which is incredibly positive i think government's kind of taken you know the bull by the horns as it were is a uh, there's a brilliant article about how milan is seeking to prevent post-crisis return of traffic pollution and so what they're going to do, they're going to try and um, change 22 miles of streets for the expansion of cycling and walking. And that's been quite interesting. Yeah. One of the things that you've noticed, because we've got to social distance or stay two metres apart, is how much space is given up, obviously, for cars on our yeah. sidewalks. You know, yeah. it, it's quite difficult to kind of go past each other yeah. with giving a two metre gap without stepping into a road. Yeah. And again, that might be kind of an interesting radical things that we're going to see in the future. So there you go. Right. Should we move on? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. Shall I ring the bell again? Yeah, go on. <laughs> okay. That's quite loud. Yeah, it was quite loud. Right. Let's go for the next one. What? Right. Oh, so, Gavin, what's another reason we can be positive in a moment? <laughs> well, it's to do with the idea of localization, I suppose. You know, this idea that uh, we're starting to see uh, this whole growth in, uh, well, growing your own, I suppose. No pun intended there, Uh, which is kind of quite fascinating, really, because obviously has kind of many uh, kind of positive impacts. And um, it was a kind of an interesting thing um, that I kind of uh, read about. It was an RSA kind of report about this. Uh, about yeah. how um what was it the uh yeah from uh what was it uh oh, 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 oh i've lost my information here uh but it was basically to do with the massive increase in um gardens and allotments and stuff like that and um trying to think about urban farming and how you can mm. kind of use that singapore for example we're trying to get um 30 percent of their uh kind of fruit and veg from urban farming by 2030 so you Mm. know again i suppose it's kind of radicalism both from kind of maybe government thinking about localization but us ourselves using more of our garden more of our allotments to grow our own i saw as well that the garden allotments apparently attracts 10 times more bees than parks and we obviously know that the bee population is incredibly important for the planet isn't it mm. Mm. it's interesting all this baking and sort of growing in allotments because it it did make me think it none of it will appear well indirectly it might but none of it will appear in gdp statistics no 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 exactly <laughs> all, all that will go in there is the kind of cost of ingredients but um you know i've made some very nice loaves recently i'll have you know uh but um i will uh consume those at home 
and it will form part of subsistence uh, production yeah. in effect i mean it's interesting i have to admit i asked my um uh, no my gcse economist this about um you know do you think britain should start producing more of our own goods you know mm. and and you know it's an interesting one because it's, we've obviously done our podcast about ricardo and understanding mm. of comparative advantage and if anybody wants to learn about that they can go and listen to our podcast on it you know how you know we specialize in these different areas but again this is really flagged up you know the problems of specialization and comparative advantage which then isn't helped probably by protectionism that kind of comes in from countries desperate to make sure that they've got the resources rather than other countries and so they as gcse students were very much in favor of britain growing their own increasing kind of you know mm. the farming and, and so on um and that's kind of quite interesting um one of the things that we um talked previously about is david epstein's book range and mm. uh, this idea that you know nowadays maybe specialization is sort of going out of fa fashion you know and it's having this kind of multi-skilled approach and i suppose maybe again lockdown has kind of shown that lots of different things don't limit yourself you know you're probably quite good at lots of different things that you don't really realize but you've just kind of said, well, they could probably do it better. Yeah, they probably could. But, you know, go for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, not... I was reading that book, I think I mentioned before, uh, False Economy by Alan Beatty. And he, he talks about, obviously, it's written considerably pre-coronavirus. But there's that tension between um, uh, com countries wanting to be self-sufficient in food, in energy versus it will cost more, at least in sort of you know monetary terms. Um, and it would cost more. You know, there are things that we, we can't produce as well as other countries. So it would be more expensive. But it's whether that's uh, we against that is the idea that there is a, a value in being um, less dependent, you know, on fragile supply chains. Though, to be fair, supply chains have held up very well, haven't they, really? Sort of food supply chains, particularly. Yeah, it's been quite I mean, We had that brief period when people were stockpiling in the UK, but... If you go into a big supermarket now, it's, you know, the, the supply chains have held up very well, actually. Um, but it's interesting. I was thinking, actually, you know, normally in economics, we talk about utility uh, from uh, utility is basically sort of the awful sort of economic term for happiness. You know, you gain utility from eating a pizza or from drinking a nice glass of wine or something like that. Um, so we often talk about utility from a consumption point of view, but there's less value paid to utility if you like from a production point of view you know people do um gain satisfaction from making their own bread from digging their own sort of garden or you know growing herbs on a balcony whatever it might be um but we don't really give much value to that in normal times well or attracting bees to a garden <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it doesn't really fit into the conventional economic model. Um, though even in normal times, so-called normal times, people are often prepared to pay more for sort of handcrafted items. It's some sort of sense that, that they see some utility in something which has been touched by a human hand, if you like. And I think people do enjoy making things, don't they? But yet, in normal times, people are so time poor, particularly in sort of Western Anglo-Saxon economies. They have very little time to, you know, make a meal, let alone, um, you know, 
dig your own or you know bake your own if you like does that make yeah, sense? yeah it does I've, I've, got, I've, I've just found my little bit of data here so in terms of radical lifestyle changes this is from a food foundation YouGov research which was commissioned by the rsa and i'll come back to some more of this data later on because it's quite fascinating three million have tried veg box veg box schemes or buying direct from the farm that's an increase mm. yeah and sorry an increase in three million and then 85 percent uh, sorry 38 percent are cooking more from scratch and there's been 17 million um people kind of or something have been throwing away less so 33 percent you know people are using food you know is this since the start yeah, of the lockdown since the start of it all yeah so i mean that, yeah all of all of which are yeah good things, exactly you know, exactly so again it's kind of quite quite fascinating there you go so mm. localization i mean again the kind of positivity there is again i suppose air miles and stuff like that and waste and mm. all the negative externalities that come about from this huge global supply chain yeah yeah are we happy with that yeah yeah uh, with with a slight caveat you know uh, with a slight caveat you know i don't think we should get too nostalgic because we you know cheap food is is a good thing in many respects isn't it but perhaps it needs some of the things which aren't priced into the cost we pay um like the external costs of air travel and air freight of some food items um is definitely something we'd quite like to yeah and i think something that we discussed in our environmental podcast and we discussed real cost economics and things like that yeah yeah okay yeah. let's go let's move on so a bit quiet time. yeah that's that that's cool <laughs> <laughs> uh what positives can we take from this unprecedented time pete <laughs> okay so i think we're going to talk now about innovation more yes. generally so businesses and people are adapting to this uh, particular situation, reorganizing their distribution. Um, you talk, for example, about um, farms, many of whom uh, up until recently would have su supplied restaurants and so on, but now they're supplying sort of consumers directly. They're trying to redirect uh, their business, which is an interesting idea. Um, there's been quite a lot of local innovation in, in, uh, in the village where I live. Um, We've got, uh, I say village, you know, it makes it sound tiny, but we've got um, three restaurants, uh, a chippy, all of which have adapted in different ways to um, the current crisis. So one of our pubs has become, they've used their um, access to suppliers to supply things that some of the uh, supermarkets have struggled to supply uh, the village with. So things like, uh, you know, bread, eggs, fresh veg and so on. Um, our chippy now <laughs> just discovered this today actually now has got its own app so this is a fish and chip shop for our international listeners um sells delicious fried uh, fried fish and chips uh now does has got its own app and you can book a click and collect wow. service but, but this is the thing is that 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 probably won't go away and this is what i find quite fascinating about it. all these innovations that coming up with is that they, they're finding new revenue streams which won't yeah. necessarily, obviously yeah. they'll go back to you know the normal punnets coming in but it does give them an opportunity to rejig their model and think actually mm. this might be a good cost saving opportunity mm. i mean in something that we talk about in um kind of microeconomics is this idea of dynamic efficiency isn't it and many yeah. businesses in, in many respects have been forced into thinking about dynamic efficiency what can they use 
in different ways to kind of maybe generate income or to lower their costs. And there's no doubt there will be some kind of knock on, you know, consequence of that later down the, the road when everything comes yeah. back to normal. Yeah, no, I'm sure you're right. Because yeah. I think that with so. National Theatre, have you watched any of the National Theatre's things yet? I haven't oh, as yet. I watched but... uh, Two Govs, no, One Man and Two Governors. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the one I Yeah, and I'm going to try and watch that Frankenstein as well. But, I mean, again, in terms of thinking about cultural capital, I know the National Theatre do the cinema things anyway, so to make it cheaper for people to go and see these big productions. But, you know, um, going to the National Theatre is expensive. It's a night out and it's quite expensive. And if you want to mm. kind of create cultural capital for everyone, again, just mm. maybe putting it online, streaming it a little bit, you know, for, you know, just asking for a little bit of a money or whatever, you know, is another way that they can gain extra revenue, but also widen out their kind of public kind of remit, I think, mm. you know, mm. what do you think of that? No, no, I, I agree completely. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a really good uh, potential outcome from this. And actually, if you, if you took that model, just as an example, how much money can they make with a physical theatre anyway? I mean, they can charge high ticket prices, but if you could get a small amount from a larger number of people, um, then it could actually improve your revenue streams. You could still get the, the theatre go. It's a bit like watching sport, yeah. isn't it? I mean, there is probably no replacement from, for going to the ground, as it were, but lots of people will quite happily watch the game on TV who can't get to the ground. So potentially theatres could open up, um, you know, broader revenue. No, it's true. And you'll still get the people who want to see the yeah. theatre live. They want to see the actor spit. Yeah. Like we did when we went to the Globe. Yeah, we saw the actor <laughs> spit. Probably at us because we were right at the front. Yeah, yeah, we really enjoyed it. But, I mean, again, thinking about um, innovation, the way that they're trying to kind of track COVID-19 through thermometers on phones. You know, the kind of app base yeah. is there. It's just incredible. And um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, and this will kind of go into another one that we're going to look at later on, is innovation from people of kind of trying to connect um, folk, as it were. Um, one of our friends, yeah. uh, Claire Balkind, um, within like, you know, the day of the lockdown, set up this family lockdown tips and ideas on Facebook which basically has got 1.2 million members I looked up today. It has, it's like mm. 10,000 ideas have been loaded up to the site in the last 30 days. And it's just incredible, that innovation. It, you know, you get, again, you get pushed to do something in order, you know, to kind of escape, you know, lockdown misery, as it were. And, you know, she's done superbly well there to get that. He's got a lot more followers yeah. than I Yeah, but now we've given it a shout out, I'm sure they'll they'll <laughs> they'll come on board. So there you go. Yeah, she'll get all the toddlers with some stuff sometimes. Well we've got a book for toddlers, so that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we have indeed, we have indeed. So there you go, innovation. We can be really positive about something. I mean, we talked about this a lot in, in the um in the coronavirus episode about obviously mm. firms like Dyson or whatever you know, trying to adapt their businesses and brew dog to, to produce things that would be helpful for the kind of effort against coronavirus. But, I mean, that this is mm. slightly different to that in terms of just saying how innovative 
people and businesses have been to kind of think of new ideas that can have yeah. a knock-on impact it's, later. Yeah, I mean, people are remarkably adaptable. It's interesting when you read online, probably more in a, a American sources, that so, some people see this tension between sort of government control of, um, you know, the, the management of the response to the coronavirus versus sort of business and local innovation. Inevitably in America, which has probably a more sort of free market slant to its economic discourse, there's some talk about, well, actually, if you deregulated things and just allowed people to innovate, you could get more more stuff done more quickly. For some people, it's a, it's a break on innovation, which is hamstringing the yeah. response, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make, yeah. I'm not sure where I agree with that completely. But, well, this is the... In um, Sort of protective equipment. Uh, there's a lot of difficulties in this country um, in acquiring the sort of necessary protective equipment for for NHS staff, unfortunately. Uh, and some people have said, again, it's more in America. You know, are we sort of worrying too much about the, you know the safety standards of sort of, of this PPE? Surely it could be made by other people just as well if it, if it wasn't yeah. so regulated. Yeah. That makes sense. Again, I'm not sure I agree. I agree with that, but it's an interesting tension between that innovation by firms and the desire to want the government to be in complete yeah. control of uh, the response. And it's true. I, re I read something about that today. I think it, I think it was in the Spectator actually about you know thinking about the recovery. You know, you hear all these things, don't you, about the V curve, the U curve, the L curve. Have you heard all them? You know. Yeah, these are all rubbish. I mean, there's so much rubbish talks about Yeah, exactly, it's GDP. Then. But this guy was basically arguing that, you know, it's the free market economies that will bounce back quickest because of their adaptability. But, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Some people, again, some people make this comparison with World War Two, where the government basically took over a lot of industries and just said right you're doing this now and there's there's definitely been a reluctance to to go down those lines uh, beyond you know with the odd exception um you know such as the excel center being converted into a hospital and so on but again i think the government did that sort of with the agreement of the private sector whereas i think in the second world war you know i think there was a more well actually the government owned more of the public sector anyway at that point um but there, there are interesting contrasts because we're obviously operating now in a culture which is very much more free market than it would have been then. And that means that, you know, the government's probably more reluctant to sort of act in a, you know, take control from the, of the commanding heights of the economy, yeah. as it were. The ticket, you know, obviously we have a, a conservative right wing government, which is, um, you know, relatively free market in its outlook. Um, and for some people, that's mean they've been much more reluctant to interfere with the free market even in this sort of more uh, you know this this extreme um sort of situation but to be fair they have acted in a a very unusual manner for a, a, a right wing um yeah and going back to our first question point. being pretty radical for their type of government in many respects in terms of the policies yeah absolutely. um yeah i think we should we end it there that, yeah we'll end it there because the next question yes, is kind of related okay. to a certain extent. So, Gab, what's another way? Well, it's been, again, thinking about the world of work. 
um, how so many of us have maybe discovered, <laughs> maybe, the joys of working from home, or at least appreciating that we can work from home a little bit more, which can then obviously have an impact then in terms of um, flexibility of work, uh, in terms of the number of cars on the road, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, obviously with kind of platforms, you know, like Zoom or, or you know, Microsoft Teams and things like that, we've seen, again, incredible adaptability of people being able to work uh, from wherever, really. And maybe businesses, again, will be thinking about what do they need in the future in terms of maybe hubs for businesses in terms of cutting down costs and thinking, OK, yeah, look, we know workers need interaction. OK, but we maybe can make some savings by using some of this kind of new technology. Mm. No, it's really interesting. Um, have you had any Zoom uh, meetings? I, well, I've been using Google Meets. Yeah, no, we've been at my school. We use Google Meet. It is interesting though, because you kind of think teaching is probably the least promising or one of the least promising areas where you feel you could actually work from home. But I, you know, I feel with older pupils, particularly, I do tend to teach older pupils. I've had some really good essays in from them. You know, they've had to sort of go away. <laughs> do some actual research for themselves and, uh, you know, in, interact with resources I've sent them. And we have done some sort of live lessons, although the level of interaction is, yeah. is quite limited. It's been much like a university, if you like. Um, um, but, yeah, I've had some really good outcomes from that. And it, like I said, you feel teaching may be one of the least promising areas where you feel that homeworking could occur. Um, it's interesting Zoom meetings, though, isn't it? Or Google Meet, whatever you do. People are very curious about what is yeah. behind you. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> true. You can see people sort of looking at their bookshelves. And thinking, <laughs> hmm, I, want, I want, I want Tolstoy back there now. I, I'll sort of, uh, I'll move some of that pulpier yeah. stuff out of shot. And there's a, there's oh. a great uh, um, Twitter um, uh, person now, I think, who's doing that about basically books in the background or something like that. Yeah, which is quite, quite oh, amazing. Right. Um, I mean, but again, it's, yeah. it's the fascination is this acceleration into thinking about ways of doing stuff that would previously have taken a long time, but everyone has been forced into doing yeah. it. And, um, you know, I think about this in terms of the digital parliament. Now, a few years back, I, I saw John Burko uh, at the policy exchange event, you know, discussing his you know, trying desperately to bring in some sort of kind of digital parliament, you know, why does everyone have to be in the house? And obviously we've had scandals in the past, haven't we, where people have been on maternity leave and then they've agreed to not vote with, with someone else or whatever because they have to be in to vote. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah, the, the, in, our, in our parliament uh, there's a system called pairing whereby uh, you pair up with someone from the opposition and if you can't vote for whatever reason, they agree then not to vote. So obviously then there's a vote cancelled out on each side and it doesn't really affect the overall vote. But there was a kind of breakdown in that relationship temporarily and, uh, and one um, MP was very, very heavily pregnant. <laughs> was sort yeah. of wheeled through in a wheelchair. Well, to no, exactly. It's graceful, really. But there's been cases in the past of people literally practically at death's door being yeah. sort of wheeled through for which are seen as particularly crucial crucial which is obviously disgraceful and you kind of think the way parliament has worked for many years in this country 
has i don't know it's put off uh, if you like normal people from going into politics it's um the sort of even the times that people keep in parliament make it very difficult to lead a normal life but i think there's been a lot of blocking by old boys you know people you know it has been a bit like a an offshoot almost of a public school and i think people from that kind of background quite yeah. like it the way yeah, it but- is um and the changes to any of those practicalities has really moved at a, yeah. a snail's pace. And it is important. It's not just a trivial issue because it it narrows the range of opinions in Parliament. And I think that, like any organisation, it just leads to poorer decision-making. Yeah. And, and, and that's, again, this acceleration of that is probably a good thing. I mean, it, it, it kind of makes me laugh, really, because I mean, we'll be talking about schooling a little bit later on. But, I mean, I've been quite resistant a lot of the time to use online you know stuff but i've been forced to do it and and until you're put into that position then you suddenly maybe see the benefits that will happen and and again i'm I'm sure we'll see that uh in the and that's why we can another thing that we can be really positive about yeah um one more more thing just um i was chatting to my my brother-in-law and keen listener who has his own legal practice and they're all currently working from home and he said he would definitely change the way they work, you know, moving forward. He feels they will. It's just opened up the idea that, yeah, working from home's okay. It's not like, uh, and that they will definitely do more of it. But interestingly, not completely. He said that there is something which is irreplaceable about actually being yeah. in a room with other people. Uh, and and they, they might reduce down that social aspect, but he still feels it's a very necessary part of business. It's, it's, it's part of being yeah. a human being, if you like. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's enormous positives from... Uh, if there are sort of permanent changes in how people view homeworking, the impacts on climate yeah. change could be really significant. I mean, it, you know, there are... You know, it's a horrible uh, business that we're involved in at the minute, but it'll be interesting to look at... Um, the carbon footprint of people this year compared with last year. I mean, there's various things just, just to sort of finish off this section on homeworking. I'd really like to see an end to a kind of present, you know, presenteeism culture. You get that even in some schools where people say, Oh, well, he goes at four every day and or whatever. And you think, well, some people just work in the evenings. I can think of a really good colleague who just wants to spend that, that, that time between the end of our school day and when she puts her kids to bed, and then she does some work in the evening. And you kind of think that's fine, that's her choice, but there are some uh, bosses, particularly, mm, you know, they're out the door on, you know, on the bell kind of thing. And I'd just like to see an end to that kind of presenteeism culture. Sadly, I think it's an Anglo-Saxon disease that's kind of spread throughout the world. I mean, I think in China it's quite prevalent now. Um, um, and I think it's a kind of the enemy of both family life, but also creativity. I mean, um, Nick, who helps us with this podcast, his workplace is quite interesting in that they have one day off a week where they can just work on other projects, which you just think, yes, you know, and some of those, that creativity feeds back into their business. They see a value to it, which I think is really good. Interesting, just on one last final uh, note, I mentioned sort of it being an Anglo-Saxon disease sort of presenteeism. I had a colleague at work who, did a secondment and worked at a school in Japan. And um, there were some school holidays when he went in. Uh, sorry, a part of the time when he was uh, working over there. And all the staff were in. And he's like, why, why are you all here? Why aren't you at home? There's no children here. Oh, yeah, we, 
we don't want to be too, <laughs> seeing yeah. ourselves to be at home. This was a 20, 20 years ago or so. And I don't know Funny enough, my, my kind of thing. Andy, what, what my, my mate with, had had that at my, my last school where he came in during the half terms because he was woefully inefficient during the school term. And so he actually looked like he was doing extra work, even though he was just bad at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if one thing, certainly, because obviously we've got an 11 month year old and we're both sort of senior teachers in schools trying to juggle the 11 month old while getting on with your schoolwork blimey are you efficient yeah. you've got a little half hour slot and you work yeah. at lights no, it's tough. Catch tough. Up with your correspondence <laughs> well i'm not saying it's tough I, i'm not I'm really not and i think for some people you know lockdown is not about sort of baking or learning the trombone or whatever it is it's uh it yeah. could be a fairly yeah, we're being, Pete, we're being positive here Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm straight from here, Chad. Right, I'm going to think about it. I knew, I knew this would happen. Misery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, ap apologies. Right. Okay, now. Right. So, uh, look, what positive... Yeah, We're exactly. Well, you're like me. We both teach the labour market. And what we're seeing is is kind of flipping economics sort of upside down. You know, this idea now that we kind of finally get to see in many respects who the key workers are in the marketplace. And these arguments I've always had with students when they say, oh, they deserve this amount. They deserve that. And you go, why? Oh, because they work really hard. And you think, yeah, OK, I think these people work. Very you know, we're seeing now maybe a change in, you know, how people see the labour market. Would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, whether it'll be lasting or not, I'm not sure. But certainly people are, are suddenly thinking, blimey, who are the key workers? Because obviously when the government was initially saying, well, these people are key workers, everyone immediately thinks police, sort of health workers. And then when they suddenly extended that to oh, transport workers, oh, right, OK, and, and people like that, it has sort of highlighted, well, who actually yeah. makes this country tick? You know, the things that we need we get them when we need them how does that how does that work so it has made people much more aware of that and i think you were going to give the example of uh even like fruit pickers you know it's like we, we've struggled to find enough people to uh, pick fruit because historically we've imported low-wage workers from uh, the european union um but again if that job's valuable why, why doesn't it yeah actually, yeah it's interesting i mean the thing is, is obviously in this country it's it's, it's very controversial at the moment because obviously the government put out a list of, you know, uh, unskilled, or no, skilled workers, you know, and um, or you had to be earning yeah. over a certain amount of money in order to become over here in terms of immigration. And so many of the workers who are mm -hmm. deemed to be key workers now would not be allowed in this country. I know. Yeah. It has and so it's quite fascinating. Yeah. I know we talked about this last time, but Rutger Bregman's book, Utopia for Realists, he talks... He, about this kind of in terms of the workers net benefit to society and it's a brilliant section in the book where he he kind of talks about public sector workers in terms of bankers and it is a bit banker bashing but is it's a brilliant bit in there where he talks about <laughs> strikes you know and um this time when bankers went on strike and basically no one noticed for like like weeks or months <laughs> or something like that and eventually they just had to go back to work and then 
Yeah, yeah, apparently. That's what it's, it's in the book. And, and, and then there's a, <laughs> obviously you go and see bin men go on strike for a week and everyone knows about it. You know, so. Yeah. It's interesting. I'll come back to bin men later yeah. when we talk about community spirit. So, you know, story. again, I think that's a really positive thing to see that maybe we should be appreciating particular workers uh, a little bit more. It's lovely to kind of clap them, but ultimately we've got to make sure that they are, have decent salaries that can you know give them a decent standard of living and i think that's really really important mm -hmm. yeah good let's move, we move on, on? Uh, give us another well, reason we want to community spirit here pete yeah we are indeed now it's interesting you mentioned the clap for the nhs and i know you've been a bit miserable about it in the sense of yeah. we shouldn't be clapping and we should be paying them um um, and I do agree with that, obviously. But actually, it's been really nice to see people out on the street um, sort of clapping the NHS for no other reason than you yeah. suddenly see people you've never seen before. Um, and it's actually brought people together. You think, oh, great, I've never seen someone come out of that house before. Uh, and everyone comes out. It's pretty well sort of um, uh, attended, if you like. <laughs> on our street and you suddenly see everyone looks happy everyone's like see feels that themselves to be part of something and i know ultimately you could say well at the heart of this there, these workers should be paid more and i completely agree with that but there is a value in and of itself of yeah. being appreciated as well and i'm not saying that should replace um being paid well but it's certainly not yeah. a bad thing in itself and, but there's been loads of instances of um, community spirit in our village um there's a really nice post on our, our village has got this facebook website which um i kind of came off actually my wife's on it but i came off it because there was there was too much sort of negativity <laughs> but actually she says it's it's been transformed by uh the current crisis and there's lots of sort of good news stories published on there uh, but our pharmacy for example which has stayed open throughout um someone one of their customers uh bought them pizza from the pub that's doing sort of takeaway so they said thank you for that which is a really nice gesture and i saw this little kid had left some chocolate eggs on the bins you know, lovely the bins that bin men came to quit and say no, that's, that's sweet picking up it? our bins in in the data from this yeah. again this re research from uh, the rsa they said that um 40 of people feel a stronger sense of local community and 39%, I found this quite interesting, mm. were more in touch with friends and family. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? 39%. I know we're talking about the kind of wider community here, but with friends and family, it just goes to show, again, how maybe we lose touch, don't we, in our modern life with our, with our close friends and family. Yeah. I mean, again, in this country, it's kind of quite interesting because for years um, we've heard from people like David Cameron trying to get the big society haven't they you know trying to encourage people to volunteer and yeah. so on and i know again this is in the time of a crisis but it's been brilliant to see you know seven hundred and fifty thousand people volunteer for the nhs mm -hmm. you know to try and help out uh, with mm -hmm. that um there was a brilliant article by charlotte morgan um from the no new local government network who talked about you know again up and down the country you know local kind of credit agencies set up and uh, there's a big local scheme in scarborough that is kind of um being given money to allocate between themselves we've got 
um, a big up my street in Haringey, which basically matches uh, people who can do jobs for those who can't particularly like mow their lawn or whatever. So again, loads of community yeah. interaction. No, this, yeah, and you you do hope that many of uh, much of that sustains yeah. itself beyond this sort of current crisis. Yeah, yeah go on. Then. Do you want an Adam Smith quote? Because ultimately, what this comes down to, I think, is that people yeah. have become more empathetic. So this is this is an Adam Smith quote because he's often put forward, as we talked in our episode, as this kind of poster boy for you know self-interest, if you like. But he was a real believer in the power of empathy and the importance of empathy. It's quite a long <laughs> quote. I'm slightly regretting saying I'd say it now, but I wouldn't say it anyway. So. How selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. As we have no immediate experience of what other men feel, we can form no idea of the manner in which they are affected, but by conceiving what we ourselves should feel in the like situation. In other words, I think this current situation yeah. has just made people a lot more empathetic. For example, you know, they are suddenly thinking, blimey, these NHS workers, they have literally got to go off to work and potentially get, a, you know, a significantly higher dose of coronavirus than you or I might just through daily social contacts. And and people are, you know, a significant number of NHS workers have died yeah. and all the others are still going into work. And I think people are much more empathetic of that than they might have been um you know previously so that growth in empathy again you just hope that that sustains itself and on a related note i think historically um and this has been whipped up by the media in this country in part but you know people have got their own minds they have a choice whether to respond to that um impetus that they receive from the media or not but i'm really hopeful that people have a more positive yeah. attitudes towards migrants you know particularly given the contribution um, and sadly sacrifice of many migrant workers um, during the current crisis you look at the NHS and whenever there's a sort of oh this this consultant has died or this nurse has died or this care worker has died a massive proportion of them are from uh, migrant backgrounds and you kind of just hope people retain that um, awareness and sort of uh, empathy for people who are, you know yeah. just from a different background to themselves Maybe I'm being naive, but I, well, I we really have, well, hope we, we've been positive, Pete. So we we are. It yeah, is going to be, yeah. and also just, gonna one, just one last thing on that. Obviously, yeah. one of our economists that we have looked up is was Eleanor Ostrom, and she clearly was all about yeah. community solutions. And I think we're really again seeing that being played out here within this kind of crisis. Um, on on that note as well. Um, I got a, a kind of a, a message the other day from a guy called Simon Kay, who basically has set up this, or the, again, the new local government network set up this Ostrom forum where you can share ideas about what's going on in your local community. So what we'll do, we'll do a link of that on Twitter and hopefully maybe people can go onto that Ostrom forum and get involved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Let's move on. Definitely. I like the idea of that. Okay. Well, uh, okay. What positives can we take for this unprecedented time, Pete? No. Yes, yeah, becoming a bit difficult <laughs> saying it for the seventh time now. I think what we wanted to talk about as well is a, yes. a change in yeah. the pace of life. Yeah. 
Um, and I think this is something which is, does vary throughout the crisis, if you like, in that um, uh, I think some people are very, very busy. And for some people, they've just gone to work as normal. Uh, you know, all those key workers we talked about. But for some people, they've they've seen a change to the pace of their life. And it has made them a little bit more reflective and perhaps uh, more, you know, reflective yeah. about what they want from life, perhaps. Um, and it does make you think because conventional economics obviously has a, a certain set of assumptions about human nature. And they are really largely to do with self-interest and so on. And you do wonder whether people will come out of this in a slightly more reflective frame of mind and think, well, do we just want to maximise our incomes? Do we perhaps want to spend uh, more leisure time with our families? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> or less. We are being positive, people. <laughs> oh, sorry, we're being positive. We're being positive. But if nothing else, it yeah. will make people more reflective. Um, I think in one of our previous episodes, um, one essay I recommended was by... Uh, E.F. Schumacher. It's quite, it's quite an, an old essay, really, uh, called Buddhist Economics. And it's about how, um, really, let's imagine you took a different set of assumptions about human nature and then said, OK, what kind of economics would follow from that? And it's a really interesting thought experiment, uh, which I'd, uh, again, encourage people to read. It's, I read it as part of a, a book small is beautiful uh but it isn't it's a separate essay as well that you can find on the internet um and i'd really recommend that because it you know it, i think it's a, a, a subtitle of small is beautiful i think it's a study of economics as if people mattered so if we sort of look beyond gdp and look beyond sort of productivity uh you know production dividends you know wh what is it we actually yeah. want from the economy and if you start from that point, you may end up with a different sort of economics and a different economy than if you start with what might be a slightly outdated set of uh, yeah. mindset that we have currently. Well, no, I was just going to um, say, because, so I, I mean, I, again, I read that. an article today on this by a guy called Alan Lightman, uh, I think, uh, in The Atlantic, and it's called Choose a Less Hurried Life. And it's kind of quite interesting. He's written a book, actually, about this called In Praise of Wasting Time. Uh, it's, you know, this idea that, mm. you know, our lives are so quick and so hurried. And in many respects, again, we've been forced to slow down. I mean, again, he quotes in this article about how walking speeds in the cities have kind of increased by like 10 percent over the last 20 odd years. And, um, mm. you know, it's kind of uh, fascinating, really. I've got here again from the data from the RSA, which is um 51% of people have noticed cleaner air, yeah, and 27% of people have noticed mm -hmm. more wildlife. No, exactly, and, and, and again, oh, you're kind of sitting down, that. and it yeah. got me thinking because I've been reading Julia Baggini's uh, book, How the World Thinks, and there's an interesting study in there about uh, fish tanks where um, basically they change something in the fish mm -hmm. tank, and Americans kind of notice right directly what's in front of them so when the fish change they just purely notice the fish they don't notice anything that's changed in the background well uh japanese notice everything on in the background not really what's going on in front of their faces and it's this kind of idea that you know they kind of see that kind of whole picture you know and it, in many respects mm. this is what again we're being forced to look at and he says in 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 again in this article about this 
divergent thinking. If you look at some of the great, you know, geniuses in the past, you know, what they've done in order to kind of get ideas is just to go on long you know struggles you know and and get really give themselves thinking time you know yeah i don't know whether this is apocryphal but apparently i can't remember who it was i think it was maybe isaac newton who um discovered his um or did a lot of work on his main theories during a previous uh, uh, right, pandemic yeah, yeah. i think it was trying yeah. to plague or something like that. yeah so it's kind of for, forced you into this kind of seclusion in which you might yeah. end up i saw this tweet uh, this morning by alex nunn um and it's kind of linked to action for happiness and it was literally just the two minute daily pause and it seemed just filming two minutes outside his window just reflecting on life and hearing all that beautiful bird song i mean isn't that lovely <laughs> so uh, eighth question pete all Are right you, so you Gap, ask just, it? just what else could we possibly have to be positive about we, we've got so so many things so last eighth question eight come on hit me we've got here learning how to cook with different ingredients yeah now I've we've kind of discussed this haven't we yeah sort of i mean what we've talked about is kind of innovation in response to um you know the difficult circumstances we're in necessity being the mother of invention have you yeah i i have I guess in economics, we, we talk about factor substitution. Do you ever talk about factor substitution? Uh, yeah, yeah, because you, you told me about it earlier on. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> uh, so it, it basically, it's a, it's a factor in el elasticity of supply. So how quickly suppliers can respond to um, a change in price or an increase in demand. Um, how responsive they are, that's called the elasticity of supply. I've pronounced it a bit oddly there. I normally say elasticity. I don't know why I've gone all elasticity. Yeah, I, I don't know. American. Uh, you, get, you see loads of it in World War Two, by the way. Um, so, for example, um, lots of factories were repurposed to make things like parachutes. And, and one of them apparently was um, uh, the DuPont factory. And one of the things that they made was uh, women's stockings. Right. So apparently okay. women used to draw a line on the back of their legs to give the impression that they were wearing, um, you know, nylons. Nice. Uh, Saucy. <laughs> <laughs> Great gravy browning apparently was used for this purpose. Wow. Well, that's interesting to know. I did yeah. look up here that um, wrap. Like an early fake tan. Oh, right, okay. Well, look, wrap, which is a waste and resources action program, says that in the past we've wasted 6.6 .6 million tons of food a year Jeez. which equates to an average of 355 pounds a year for each household and 70 percent of that wasted food could have been eaten and i think what what again we really positive thing about the lockdown has been is that it, it, you can't just nip to the shops to to get whatever you want every single day yeah. you've got to use those storeroom kind of a, you know yeah. Yeah. things lingering at the back there yeah well they have to be much more inventive during world war ii as you can imagine yeah to be honest nowadays i think we mentioned this already but supply chains really aren't that bad um you know i've been to the supermarket and there's very few things that you you can't buy now in the uk which is um very different from World War Two, where you had sort of obviously the 
the seas were awash with submarines. Yeah. Uh, things like that. And there, there were, you know, for example, um, no, actually, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions. I, I, I did line you up with a little quiz. You up for that? Yeah, I absolutely love it, Pete. <laughs> I and know I you can... normally quiz me, but I thought I would uh, no, and I have can... a little go. Yeah. And I can put these on Instagram and see how well that people get on. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, hopefully that's not after they've listened to the podcast. Otherwise, I'll know the answer. <laughs> yeah. So I'll hit you with question one. So what was added to pastry dough to fill it out a bit? Uh, bread. No, potato. <laughs> He's not far off, you know, chuck another carb in there. You know. Yeah, I'm thinking bulky. Yeah, bulky, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, to be fair, you do add sort of, um, you know, what they call breadcrumbs to sauces to thicken them as well. So, right. yeah. Okay. Not a bad guess, but ultimately you're wrong. Uh-uh. So what fizzy drink was invented to replace coca-cola in wartime germany now i know this one because i watched a mark thomas program about coca-cola and it's fanta it is fanta yeah so you've got one out of five so well one out of two so <laughs> <laughs> that's right. good 50 percent uh what type of bread was banned during world war ii in the uk uh, uh to be honest i have no idea on that one you're not gonna have a guess uh well i, I was thinking someone some, leave a blank you wouldn't tell your kids to leave a blank on an example okay well i'm thinking something like ciabatta <laughs> <laughs> it, no it wasn't ciabatta it was white bread white bread yeah apparently it's, it, around that time and to be honest this is still the case we used to import a lot of wheat from canada and we couldn't do so at the time so um they, they, you know, it was almost insisted upon that you, you used sort of British wheat, right? Uh, and it became known as the national loaf, right? Uh, only using British flour, and apparently it was so horrible it became known as Hitler's secret weapon. No. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. So you've got what have you got now? One out of three. Have you been reading a book, Pete? No, I looked on a website. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do read, though. We do encourage people to read. No, that's read. Uh, right, question four. What replaced eggs in a wartime recipe for mayonnaise? Uh, I, I reckon they just juiced it up with some extra water. No, it was potato again. No. <laughs> Which sounds odd a bit, really. Potato. It, yeah, it is yeah. odd. Uh, right, and, and last, that's a four out of five, right? Uh, no, one out of four, yeah. So the fifth and final question, uh, Spam was another wartime favourite. Apparently it was designed originally uh, in 1937, I think, to make pork shoulder go further. Right. And it wasn't a particularly fashionable meat at the time. I, I like pork shoulder, actually. Um, not that we eat that much meat since our environmental podcast. That is true. Yeah. yeah. So Spam, you, you're familiar with Spam? Yes. So this one's going to be multiple choice, give you a bit more of a chance. Good. Uh, so... What does spam stand for? Is it special army meat? That's option one. Spiced ham? That's option two. Or it is a mystery known only to company executives? That's yeah. option three. Yeah. Well, uh, from my experience of being on eggheads, uh, I think uh, I'm going to go for th the third one. Because when you have something like that thrown in, it's probably the answer. All right. Well, you are absolutely right. So you got two out of five. Yes. Right? That's not too bad, is it? Yeah. Well, 
So, yeah, so factor <laughs> substitution. And are we doing it in our own uh, kitchens? Have you used anything different that you wouldn't know? Well, I, I've, like I said, I've gone to the back of the food cupboard. I've used pearl barley and I've used my lentils and chickpeas that I've had for about seven years. I've now boiled them up and I've used. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I feel I've been pretty good. Uh, good. Do you want me to chuck in a bit of random Roman knowledge? Excellent. This, it, it's what, this is what the podcast lovers want. <laughs> you know, you mentioned chickpeas. Yeah. Have you heard the fa- of the famous orator Cicero? Mm, I'm aware of him. Yeah, apparently his name means chickpea. Well, there you go. It doesn't sound as grand, <laughs> does it? You say Cicero, and it sounds wonderful, but like that, it's chickpea, the famous uh, orator. They, well, excellent. Yeah. So, our, po- our positivity is just this idea here that we can be inventive. Yeah, we can- we can make do yeah, and 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 waste is going to go down. I mean, I, I know I quoted that thing about six point six million tons. That was in two thousand yeah two thousand and eighteen. Yeah. But in actual fact, in two thousand and seven, it was eight point one million tons. So already we're on our way down, and I think this, you know, time will lead to it going down even further. Yeah, good. Okay, so yeah, I think bell. Bell. are we ready for the next question? Okay, opportunities for online learning is our next positive. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there are lots of opportunities for online learning. Um, we're teachers. So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the Oak Academy, which has been in the news? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I went online and suddenly within two weeks over the Easter period, like a bunch of teachers had got online on a, a, a Zoom call and um, they had basically set up um, – a curriculum for the Oak Academy every day. They've got, I think, a maths lesson, an English lesson, a science lesson across like all the year groups from primary up until year 10. It's phenomenal. Mm. And it just goes to yeah, show, fantastic. you know, how, it, again, innovative people can be with, with certain things. And and we can see that as, as well with online learning. You know, I've had to think about my lessons that I've been teaching. And, you know, and I mm. know that when I go back to kind of reality, there will definitely be things I will be taking from this period, which I've kind of been forced to do mm-hmm. because, you know, in the past, I, th- I can just kind of get away with it just by seeing them. And I think I could be much more organised now. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. It's certainly made me more organised. Um, I mean, really think about um, materials that you're going to put online for kids as well. Um yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting, isn't it? Just this sort of, um, it, it's a sort of slight aside here, but obviously I remember sort of early on in the pandemic, I was like, oh, blimey, China built a, a new hospital within sort of a week or something like that. And actually similar things have occurred in the UK. You know, there's these various field hospitals that have been set up um, around the country, like uh, you know, called the Nightingale um, Hospitals. So one's in the Excel Centre in London. I think there's one in Birmingham that's... Uh, in situ as well and there's others potentially planned if they're needed i mean at, at present there hasn't been thankfully um quite the demand for them um but it just shows you what what can be done with it you know you think of all these infrastructure projects that overrun in the uk and yet seemingly with you know some urgency uh, incredible yeah, things it, happen. I, uh, but, but we are i'm sort of straying from the point somewhat i mean you mentioned the oak academy i i just wanted to make a few recommendations for uh, yeah. MOOCs, uh, Mass Online Open Courses. I think that's what it stands for. Um, and a platform that I've used quite regularly um, in the past, both to recommend students and for myself, actually, 
is Future Learn. Have you come yeah, I've done a few Learn? courses on there. One by Paul Dick. Yeah, I think they've actually just set up some courses for schools. But I mean, if if you are interested, there's some really really interesting economics courses on there, and there's stuff about sort of pandemics as well. If you want to, um, you know, become more knowledgeable about um, the current situation, there's one from the Open University called uh, Pandemics Modeling and Policy. Um, that looks really interesting. There's quite a few economics ones that look great. Uh, Concept and Sustainable Development, uh, University of Leicester. Uh, UCL have got one called Global Prosperity Beyond GDP, which again sounds really topical. Um, and the Open University has got one on wealth and income inequality. Um, and one more, the UEA, what is international development? So really good, I mean, it, for old, older students, but just people with an interest in economics. Um, and obviously, relatively recently was Earth Day uh, and... The University of Michigan's got one on there called Earth Day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, ne I've never really done many economics courses, ironically, on FutureLearn, but I have done some fantastic ones on ancient history. I did um, one about life on Hadrian's Wall, um, one about the Roman port, Ostia, uh, or Portus, I think it's called the course, and then one exploring the ancient city of Rome through virtual reality. But I've got I've really enjoyed them. They're kind of... They're both broken up. They're, they're, you know, they're chunked really well and you can sort of dip in and out of them. There is interaction if you want to sort of get involved in that or you can just watch, watch some sort of short video clips. But I'd really recommend um, FutureLearn as a platform. And some people, you know, we stress this throughout the podcast, not everyone, uh, but some people do have more time on their hands. And th these are fantastic uh, courses. They really are really Yeah, really I'd good. recommend Seneca Learning as well. It's a, a, a good site um you know for right. some courses another roman uh well there you go and I, i've set my um year 11 going into year 12 um an economics course related to that so yeah i'm going to set you some homework you can find out what seneca uh, means does it mean something as interesting as <laughs> well th thank you pete i'll put that up as a quiz again on instagram but again i mean what i mean what a positive thing Quite niche, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But, yeah. but, we're, we're, but again, a really positive thing is this, this idea that we are seeing things in the school educational world that we can use, you know, at, from now on, I think, in a really productive way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ring that bell. Good. Okay. Ring the bell again. Yeah. And Gav, our last reason to be positive. Yeah. The well, it's... You know, something that we've talked about already, but we talk about every podcast and it's the joy of reading. And do you feel that some people are rediscovering that joy? now? That yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, it's a bit sort of middle class when people say, oh, these are the top 10 books you can now get through while you're on lockdown. Because like you say, there's loads of people out there who are still working incredibly hard. But with people yeah. with time on their hands, you know, there is that opportunity. Yeah, and even people who are working hard, when they do have a bit of downtime, two of my brothers who are working in the NHS, actually sent them both yeah. a book that I thought they'd enjoy, sort of when they have a few moments to themselves, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I've got, I've, I'm specifically going to recommend sort of long reads that you might not Love normally it. have time to read. So big, big, long, fat books. I'll go for economics ones, first of all. And... <laughs> I bet anyone to finish these because they're bloody hard work. Uh, right, so here we go. Marx's Das Love Kapital. Uh, Thomas, how do you? I never know how you pronounce it. Thomas yeah, Piketty. 
uh, capital for the 21st century. That's a big. Can I just say that there's, there's a documentary uh, coming out on on called Capital, uh, so uh, obviously based on that book. So that's looking forward right. to that. Want to look out for? Where, where would well, I've seen the trailer that? on YouTube. Where it'll be coming out soon. All oh, right. Okay. And the last one I was going to say is Keynes' yes. general theory, which again is quite impenetrable. But if you've got a lot of time on your hands, go for it. Now, can I just say I asked on our Instagram account uh, what are the best books you've read during lockdown, and we've got yeah. one person called Jack Barnett who's basically said the general right. theory by Keynes. No, seriously, finished it last night. Wow. Yeah. Respect. So yeah. they right. So you set him some homework. <laughs> <laughs> um, some some non-economics books, which uh, I've read in the past, which are, are lengthy, but I, I think are really enjoyable. I am going to sound completely pretentious in a minute, by the way. Uh, Vikram Seth's A Suitable Boy, which I think is fantastic. And I'm going to say it, Tolstoy's War and Peace, Boom. it is brilliant. Once you get past the first few chapters where a million and one characters are introduced it's fantastic it's like a soap opera i'd really recommend that a few a couple more which are yeah. a bit more pulpy uh ken follett's pillar of pillar of fire that's really good i say pulpy that's not doing it a disservice it's really readable and uh shogun by james clavell you probably watch a miniseries but the book is yeah. even ken better. follett lives in my village i think so i think he's a network he? boy but there you oh. go oh, oh. I can't claim anything there, like Tolstoy lives <laughs> in my village. Or, you know, yeah. Good claim to um, yeah. I just right. got a few recommendations. Again, on that question that I asked on Instagram, here are the, some from our, from our listeners. Yeah. Uh, Thinking Fast and yeah. Slow. That's the, yeah, good book. Yeah, yeah that's the only economics yeah. one. I've got that on Audible. Yeah, so uh, well, I was listening to it in my car, but obviously I'm not tracking right. anywhere at the moment. So I've kind of slowed up on that. I always like to have a an audible book on the go, but that has dried up. Yeah. But I was, yeah, well, I was good, really enjoying it. Yeah. And the other three are uh, fiction. Oh, no, actually, no. There's Note Through the Wire, which is related to Auschwitz. And then um, there's right. The Milkman, which won the Booker Prize in 2018. And one, I'm, right. I reckon you might have read, The Secret History by Donna Tart. Oh, there you go. brilliant. Well, if you've got an interest in, in classics, you'll absolutely love it. But it's, it's a great yeah. sort of thriller as well. Yeah. Very well written. It'll, you'll feel clever. Yeah. After well, you've there you it. go. It's one of those. So, <laughs> Even you. What a uh, <laughs> damning praise. So, um, <laughs> the miracle. Yeah. The miracle um, that's it. Yeah. Okay. So, we want to thank a few people, don't we? As always, we want to thank Pete, Pete. Nick for. No. Uh, you, you forgot to, and obviously I've got a poem what? coming. Remember, oh, remember we don't we don't let any podcast go without me boring you with a poem. Sorry, there's sort of a bit of sort of Freudian sort of moment there where I thought no. we might be over, but we're not. Right? No, of course we're looking forward to it. So yeah, but before I start, I'd just like to recommend the 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 new poet that's out there online called the Economic Poet. Go and search them out. They are absolutely fantastic on Twitter, Instagram. They're superb. Okay. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, that, so that is a, what is that? A third? Uh, well, of well we, yeah, well, I think so. That. I think, I think it's out there. So anyway, here's my one. You, you, <laughs> him and 
Oh, it's so yeah. the economics yeah. comedian. Isn't it? Yeah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe some of the poet. Uh, the I think some of the people we've looked at before turned to poetry. Didn't Hayek? Uh, who quite a who knows? Yeah, I'm sure he did. When we looked at our Hayek episode, I'm sure he. I'm sure he wrote. A but whatever like happens, it won't be as good as this yeah. poem. <laughs> no. Or, or the economic poet. No. This is a positivity poem. Yeah. And everything rhymes with positivity. Right. Okay, here we go. Wow. <clears throat> We're not George the poet, but with him we do agree. From this crisis can emerge a new reality. We finally value the workers at the heart of society. And next time we'll vote to fund them properly. Those jobs deemed unskilled are crucial, you can see. Yet the market undervalues those roles with empathy. More than ever, we've come together as a community and we're understanding the linking power of new technology. Innovation knows no bounds. Take the Oak Academy, an online school designed in weeks, all completely free. We're also seeing how we can improve environmentally uh, and solving problems start so small, done by you and me. A transformed world can occur after this tragedy. Within the darkness, we've seen the light of possibilities. So when it's time, step outside with positive energy and go forth and do your bit for the sake of humanity. Well, thank, well, thank you, first of all, for such a wonderful That's time. Right. Well, thank uh, Nick for his efforts to, to produce our podcast and make it sound uh, even mildly professional. Uh, and we also want to thank all of our listeners, all the people who um, contribute on Twitter and Instagram. Do you want yeah, to just at Economics in 10. We, we really like to hear from you, join in our quizzes, you know, all, all that stuff. Yeah, and do email us at uh, economicsintent at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We've had some fantastic emails over the last year with suggestions of things they've uh, liked to hear more of and uh, things they've enjoyed and also we love reviews We're, we are quite shallow so uh, positive reviews on uh, iTunes or, or whatever platform you use we, yeah, we, we, do, love, we, do we, like we love them uh, and uh, they also help attract other people to the podcast and uh, our educational and enjoyable <laughs> message thank you very much everyone <laughs> so is that it yeah, okay then. All right. Well, goodbye <laughs> for now. Bye-bye.